following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. The idea that she loved us first, now that I look back on it, is fantastic theology. And, and now looking back on it, you know, 30, I'm 31 now, so, you know, at least 20 years later, I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, my mother had fantastic theology. It was important to her to know that there was nothing I could do to earn her love, that she loved me first, that there was nothing that I did to, to obtain that love from her. And that was the message that she was constantly trying to tell me. And as we look in this passage, I, I think it's important to know that God is not doing this because somehow he owes his people something. God is doing the exodus because he loves the Israelites, because he has heard their cries. And they have acted very faithfully over this time as, as the Lord has prepared the exodus to happen. Exodus 6, 1 through 8 says, Then the Lord told Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. When he feels the force of my strong hand, he will let the people go. In fact, he will force them to leave this land. And God said to Moses, I am Yahweh, the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as El Shaddai, God Almighty. But I did not reveal my name, Yahweh, to them. And I reaffirm my covenant with them. Under its terms, I promise to give them the land of Canaan, where they were living as foreigners. You can be sure that I have heard the groans of the people of Israel, who are now slaves to the Egyptians. And I am well aware of my covenant with them. Therefore, I say to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will free you from your oppression, and I will rescue you from your slavery in Egypt. I will redeem you with a powerful arm and great acts of judgment. I will claim you as my own, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, who has freed you from your oppression in Egypt. I will bring you into the land I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give to you as your very own possession. I am the Lord. God loved us First, this wasn't some new development that the Israelites, because they've called out to God, that finally he decides, oh yeah, maybe I should do something about that. Now, now because we've called out to him, that maybe now I'll do an act of love. God has loved us from the beginning. He is an eternal God. He is before time, he is current, and he is beyond all time. God has loved us since we were created, since he created the very thought of us. God loved us first. The Israelites did nothing to deserve this rescue. God is reacting to a love that is in him, not something that we have somehow caused him to do. Through all of the signs and the plagues, we see this love over and over again, and God proclaims that they will know that I am. I am so many things. The name of God, love, being one of those things. God is love. It defines him. <clears throat> God demonstrates his love all around us. We see it all throughout creation. Love from God is not a new thing. It isn't a current development, and it has very little to do with what you have done to earn it. God loved us first. Out of this love, out of receiving this love, we see man's submissive response. God's works are always a gospel response. They are never a cause for the gospel message. We react 
We, we are overfilled with love in our lives because of what God has done in us. So the people of Israel did just as the Lord had commanded through Moses and Aaron. They didn't do this out of a sense of obligation. They didn't do this out of a sense of self-preservation. They did this because God had demonstrated such a powerful love to them that they are overflowing and must react to that love. And they were obedient. This is a theme all throughout the Exodus. We see this in the Passover as the very specific instructions that are given for the Passover. We see this in the preparations for leaving a country. We, leave, we see this when it says that that very day they got up and they left. Now, that seems like a pretty small thing, right? If you've been hanging out a place you really didn't want to be for a while, it's not that big of a deal to leave. But in this particular case, they've been there for 430 years. That's roughly 15 generations of people. That's older than the United States. That's those of us from America imagining long before any of us, really most any of our ancestors, ever arrived in the country before the culture was set, before the states existed, before the Constitution has been written. That's how long the Israelites have been in this place. Their identity has been attached to it. They are in the land of Egypt. Now, they are God's people in the land of Egypt. But to assume somehow that it hasn't become their home to some extent would just be not taking in the whole context. The Israelites are being asked to leave what they have made as their home. For those of you that, that have worked in, uh, in contexts where ongoing poverty is an issue, we see this idea of cyclical poverty. And if you've worked in those contexts, you can understand just how complicated it can be to minister to a community of cyclical poverty. Why? Because over time, those circumstances that you're subject to, they become part of your community. They become part of your culture. In all countries, all of us, all of our cultures are subject to that very thing. It doesn't matter where you're from, you come from a place that has defined your culture to some extent. Having been in the land of Egypt for such a long time, having been slaves, spending 430 years in the land of Egypt, that has become part of your identity as a people. And now God is saying, get ready, because tomorrow you're leaving. Tomorrow you're leaving. So you're going to do these things tonight. You're going to be obedient. You're going to do these acts of faith. And then tomorrow I'm going to take you out of your home. Where to? The promised land. A place that nobody's laid their eyes on yet. Not from that community. One of the commentaries that I was reading on this brought up a, a, a wonderful uh, kind of corollary to this. Where he said that this is a wonderful picture of what it means to move on after we have died into the next life with Christ. And that we're coming from this place, this place that we know, this context that we understand, this place that has defined who we are as a culture, and we are submitting ourselves to a place and a time that we have no understanding of. And we're doing that in faith. God is asking the Israelites to give up everything they know and to follow Him. This response is very important. It has become part of their identity. They're not just leaving a place that they were persecuted. They're leaving a place that has become part of them. And they do it overnight. How many of you would be willing, based on a message from a prophet, to say, pack your things, tomorrow you're leaving? Leaving everything. Leaving everything you know. From this submissive response, we see God's perfect transformation happen. Right? So, God loved us first. And therefore, we are obedient. 
because he loved us first. And through that obedience, we see God's great transformation happen. I like to look at the method as a whole here. You can imagine setting a stage, right? Where the, the audience is, is standing by, and they don't necessarily know what's about to happen, but there's a bunch of stage people uh, putting things on the stage, moving things around, people running around behind, behind the scenes, behind the curtains. And then at, one, at a certain point, the curtain comes up, and the show begins. God has been setting the scene through these 11 signs and wonders. He's been setting the place, the context where the exodus can happen. Many of us might have a story similar to this, right? Things happening in the background that you're unaware of, that you have no understanding of, but that God is, is putting in place so that when it is time for you to act, you are able. What's interesting about this is that these acts of faith are not simply things that we do all in and of ourselves. God is an enabler of those things as well. He is preparing a time and a place where those things can happen. He was preparing in Egypt. He was preparing a Pharaoh. He was preparing Pharaoh's people for this to happen. God was setting the stage. In my life, the stage setting was quite painful. I had made several choices in my life that were not following Christ. Some relationships that were uh, not healthy. Job aspirations that were not healthy. Not things that God wanted me to do. And before he brought me to Thailand, he wiped all those things away. And it was honestly months of misery. Months and months of absolute misery. Leading up to a point where I received a clear vision for for exactly what God wanted me to do. And there was such an amazing uh, feeling in that. And now I can look back on that season of my life and I can look back at the people that God took from my life and the things that he changed in my life and I can see how all along God was setting the stage for his great work to happen, for his great transformation to happen. God has set the stage. He has prepared the Israelites. He has prepared the Egyptians. And he has brought Pharaoh to his knees. And he raises the curtain on his big exodus and it's time to go. This transformation is complete. It's not just a little bit. It's not just a tweak on their lifestyle. God's transformation is amazing and wondrous when it takes place. Because God's transformation is something beyond what we are capable of. And the things we are capable of, we can think, can be quite mundane. The relationships we can part with. The things in our lives we can change. The money that we can deal without. Those things, when we do that... Yeah, that's a big deal, and maybe we're a little bit proud of ourselves, but the great transformations in life that God does in you are beyond what you are capable of. And in this particular case, God is asking tens of thousands, if not millions, of Israelites to get up and leave overnight. Such an amazing transformation that took time to happen. The curtain raises. God does his final act. The straw that breaks the camel's back. All firstborn sons. There was not a single house where someone had not died. It says that there was a great wailing. Now, as an Egyptian, it was most likely, it, most likely everybody knew at some point in time that this was coming. As the Egyptians, the word had spread that this was the prophecy. And the firstborn sons were going to die. And if you were a parent, knowing that most likely your firstborn son was going to die at midnight, on that night, I'm sure you're sleeping like a baby. Right? 
Because at this point in time, we see that the Egyptians had come to know God's wrath. They had come to believe God's wrath because they had seen it over and over and over again. And we see Pharaoh's close cabinet. We see them starting to turn on Pharaoh and say, Pharaoh, we need to get rid of these people. They know that God means business. And when God says, you're firstborn, they're all going to die, you better believe that they thought it was going to happen. So at midnight, 01, your firstborn dies. And it's not the cry of the firstborn because actually God took them peacefully. It doesn't say that the firstborn were the ones wailing. It was the families. And there was a great wailing over the people. Because God did what he said. And if there's one thing that God always does, it's exactly what he says. The response to this method Pharaoh sent for Moses and Aaron during the night. Get out, he ordered. Leave my people and take the rest of the Israelites with you. Go and worship the God that you have requested. Take your flocks and herds as you have said and be gone. Go, but bless me as you leave all the Egyptians. Urge the people of Israel, get out of the land as quickly as possible. For they thought, we will all die. The people of Egypt were no longer on Pharaoh's side. They're trying to push the Israelites out. And God predicted this. He said, my work is going to be so amazing. My, my wrath is going to be so great that the Egyptians are going to be pushing out the Israelites, casting them out of their land. Very well, Moses replied. I will never see your face again. That was chapter 10. We have a bit of an, an interesting context here where in chapter 10, Moses says, I'll never see your face again. But in chapter 12, it says he sent for Moses and Aaron and then he communicated this. Now, if you look into how this was written, it was probably actually a, 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 a mistranslation of the word that was used. Because that idea of summoning doesn't necessarily always mean bringing. It also means that you can send word to. And to be consistent with the scriptures in chapter 10, it's very conceivable that what Pharaoh did is he sent a message to Aaron and Moses telling them to go. Right? Because Pharaoh could do that. He could send his entourage, his people, his, a messenger on his behalf, demanding that they leave. And they would speak with the word and the authority of Pharaoh. And so I do believe that, that, that it, the scriptures are accurate, that Aaron and Moses did not see Pharaoh again. But that Pharaoh was so angry, so, so upset, that the last thing he wanted to do was bring Aaron and, and Moses to come and be in his presence. These people are dangerous. These people wield the power of God, and God is not happy with Pharaoh. The last thing Pharaoh wants is them to be in his presence. Pharaoh is going to summon them, meaning I'm going to send them a message. Get out. Be gone. Go away. Go worship this God that you talk about. And please bless me as you go. We see Pharaoh's change of heart as Pharaoh has gotten harder and harder and harder. And not to give any, way, any spoilers away, but... Changes his mind again, right? We know this going forward. But for now, he's getting harder. And then we see this change in Pharaoh's heart. When God acts, the hardest of hearts change. Go worship the Lord God as you have requested. Acknowledging, using God by his name. Acknowledging his presence, his power, and his authority. But bless me as you leave. As they're leaving, the Israelites are filling their pockets with all the precious metals because the, the, the Egyptians are just throwing stuff at them. Please go. Take everything. Take all of our metals. Take, take everything that is precious to us. Please just go. 
And Pharaoh is seeing this all take place. Please just bless me as you go. It's hard to know what Pharaoh's state of mind was here. I can imagine that he's grieving the loss of his son. That his country is grieving the loss of their sons. All of them. All firstborn sons. All the livestock. Millions of people, potentially. And Pharaoh just broken. Go. I believe this God is powerful. Please just go. And he's so powerful. And I see how powerful he is. Please bless me as you leave. I have learned. Pharaoh is broken. Pharaoh has a change of heart. We also see the Egyptians' change of hearts around them. The Lord caused the Egyptians to look favorably on the Israelites. So it wasn't simply just that they were getting rid of them, but because God could have just said that. In the scripture, in Exodus, it could have just said, and the Israelites pretty much bribed them to get out. But it doesn't say that. It says that, that God caused the Egyptians to look favorably on the Israelites. So there was this act of the Egyptians' change of heart as well. It says that they stripped the Egyptians of their wealth. <clears throat> Can you imagine you're about to leave with tens of thousands to millions? We'll get into the number thing here in a second. And you're, you're going on kind of an unknown journey for an unknown length of time. And you're going with a minimum of tens of thousands of people. The, the, the amount of wealth needed to be able to sustain a community like that as they sojourn through the land is quite significant. And it says that they stripped Egypt, great, mighty, powerful Egypt, they stripped Egypt of their wealth. The Egyptians' hearts changed. God caused their hearts to change. And it says that all the Egyptians urged the people of Israel to get out. We will all die. The Egyptians believe. That's the amazing thing. God isn't just doing a transformation in the lives of the Israelites here, but we're seeing Pharaoh change. We're seeing the Egyptians change. We're seeing them come to a knowledge of the wrath, the power, the extreme might of the God that the Israelites worship. That is an amazing thing. We know that someday every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. It doesn't just say the Christian knees will bow and the Christian tongues will confess. <coughs> every knee, every tongue, at some point in time, everybody will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. That is a promise. And we see a glimpse of that here. We see a glimpse of what that means. That somehow, some way, when Jesus is present, when God's might and power is present, people will respond. Regardless of their faith. Regardless of their belief, you will be compelled to respond. So then we get to the Exodus. We see the Pharaoh's change of heart. We see Egyptians' change of heart. We get to the Exodus, and we've got this massive number of people, which if you add up the 600 alpha of fighting men, whatever that means, and we'll get into that in a second, and I'm not a, a Hebrew scholar, so please forgive my pronunciation, um, you add in the old men, the children, the, the wives, the servants, everybody, the whole families, right? You get a number of somewhere between 22,000 and 2.4 million, right? It's a broad range. And I read several commentaries that were strong, avid believers of both ends of that spectrum and several in between. 
Let me tell you, disclaimer here, it doesn't matter. It really honestly doesn't matter. At the end of the day, God's might and power is not any less amazing because it was 22,000 versus 2.4 million. At that point in time, it's all just a miracle, right? You get to a certain point of miracle and everything above that is just miracle, right? So not more miracle or less miracle. There's just kind of one quantifier, miracle. That's happened. So it doesn't really matter. But why is there this disagreement? I think it's important because we want to believe, we, we do believe in, in the inerrancy and, and the inspiration of Scripture. And so it's important for us to dive into this a bit, but I don't want to spend too much time. So here it is. <coughs> this disagreement over the word comes to how the word was used traditionally. It can be used in the military context to mean a thousand fighting men. So men over the age of 20, but not too old to wield a sword. If you take that translation, that's, that means 600,000 fighting men, plus their families and everybody around them. That does not include under 20, over whatever fighting age, could have been about 45 or 50. They didn't always live to be that old back then. And all the women, the children, the servants, the slaves, everybody. So if you multiply that out and estimate a household size, that's where you get the 2.4 million size, which is quite impressive. You're just imagining 2.4 million. That's, that's two and a half times the population of Chiang Mai province. That's a significant group of people, right? That's way more than it's going to fit in any stadium. Then the other end of the spectrum, an alpha, is, is used to talk about uh, the number of people that a small community could produce, the number of fighting men that a small community could produce. So that's probably more reasonably between 10 and 15 men. So you'd have these these family homes, these estates. And the question was, is how many fighters could one family or, or, or one grouping, one community provide? And that, and that would be this, this quantifier. And it was more likely between 12 and 15. So if you do the math and extrapolate and add in all the people, then that's where you get the 22,000 number. For some communities, that number was a lot more. For some communities, it was a lot less. And honestly, we don't know for sure. There's a good argument that it was the 2.4 million because it does say that they left Egypt, Egypt Egypt as an army, and they use a military term to quantify the numbers. So it's, it's reasonable to think that that might be the case. On the other end of the spectrum, it's reasonable to think that the word would have been used in its more traditional context, which is number of fighting men that a small community can produce. So it can go either way. So I don't believe that this has any bearing on the inerrancy of Scripture or the inspiration of Scripture. I think that it could go either way, and the gospel is still the gospel, and Scripture is still the Scripture, and I don't think that this is a material disagreement. Either way, 22,000 people exiting, taking what they can carry, having their pockets filled full of precious metals on their way out, driving huge uh, droves of of livestock is an impressive sight. 22,000 people, that's about the size of like a normal sports stadium, could carry 22,000 people. So just empty that stadium out. And that's what you have. That would be a fairly large camp. If you think about the size that it would take to camp. So you put that many people in a stadium, and you have, what, about a foot and a half square of space available to you, right? It's not a very big space. But in a camp, you're going to assume that most camps are going to be pretty, pretty big, right? You've got tents. You've got livestock. You have a family. You have food. It's a pretty significant area. So it is possible that even with 22,000 people, the camp was still several square miles. It could be quite large. So we have this massive group of people, regardless of the size, an impressive group of people. And it says, on that day the Lord brought the people out of the land of Egypt like an army. These people were ready, and they marched out like an army with the authority 
of the person in charge. That's what an army is. An army is an agent, an agent of the person in charge. They are there to represent the, the desires, the authority, the well-being of, of, of the, the country, the community that they represent. And like an army, these people are walking out of Egypt representing the power, the authority, and the might, the sovereignty of the God that they worship. It must have been an impressive sight. So as God goes through this amazing transformation, he establishes something very, very important. And that's the renewal of this covenant. This idea that God is in relationship with his people and he has made a covenant and he is delivering on his covenant. (coughs) He's asking them to remember their covenant. This covenant is significant. After 430 years of being in this place of God and then God asking them to leave and to move on to a new place, uh, 430 years is a lot of generations. And in a a context and and a group of people that wasn't necessarily very literate, didn't have much for written tradition, the idea that tradition would, would continue to tell the story was very important. And God is establishing something that would have been very relevant to the people there. He's saying, I don't want you to forget. And the way that happens in our day and age is we establish a tradition to go through and remember what has taken place here. To renew this covenant that I have with you. Tradition is vital. Over 15 generations, does your family still have viable traditions? Any of you might... If any of you do know what your family looked like 15 generations ago, I would, I would be really curious to know if you still have any family generations that still carry on to today. Tradition is a very hard thing to carry on in many contexts. And God is establishing a tradition, and he's going to make it stick because he's going to establish it with rules. What he's saying is, if you believe, if you are a member of this covenant community, you will Observe this covenant through the Passover. Not if, not as it's a good idea, as in it says later, or it says earlier on, that those that do not observe the Passover will be thrown out of, cast out of the community. God is saying that this tradition will stick, that we will not forget, because if you want to stay in this community, this is your act of faith. This is your act of loyalty. It is significant. So we see the renewal of the covenant. And in this passage, we get the where, the how, the when, and the who. Where? Indoors. Where you are. Why indoors? It gets read a lot when we celebrate traditional Passovers. And one of the traditions of our church is we celebrate an an Easter Passover dinner usually around the Easter time, and we will invite you to come and join us, and you'll hear some of this in a more Passover setting in that context. But the where is important that you celebrate it indoors. Now, the interesting irony of this is we don't celebrate the CCF1 indoors because finding a place they can celebrate it indoors is quite complicated. Good news is we're all under a new covenant, and so we can recognize this Passover. We can observe it without being under the law. It it becomes a representation and a remembrance rather than the law. And so we can remember it now without having to do it indoors. 
And it's still very, very important. In this day and age, God made it very clear that it will happen indoors because that's where I wanted you to stay while the death angel was passing over. That's how you kept your family safe. I want you to be indoors. It was also, it's also easier to, to uh, protect it indoors. If you're outside, right, food falling off the table and being wasted, which would be against the rules, uh, a foreigner or some, some person just walking by, coming in and eating some of the food, which would have been against the rules. If you're inside, you can control the environment. And God is trying to protect his people in this. He doesn't want them to fail. He doesn't want them to break the rules. So he's saying, do it inside. This is the right place to do it. This is where you're safe. And this is the place where you can remember what that Passover night was like when the angel of death passed over and the firstborn sons were all killed. We also get the how. We get some specifics. Now, there's more specifics in other scriptures, but it says here, don't break bones, which we still uh, observe as a a Passover tradition. And and the reason for that, even though it doesn't explain that here, we do see it in other scriptures, because God's covenant community is meant to be unified. And this idea that we're breaking bones is this idea that, that, that we're casting off, that there's disunity, that things are broken. And God says, don't break the bones. It's a symbol. It's a symbol. Don't break the bones. And that it's also important that it is a community meal. The Passover is something designed to be done in fellowship with God's covenant community. It says here that that it should be done together with others and that there should be no food left over and food should be portioned out by size. It's all very community-oriented. It's very consistent with the culture of that day and age. We also get to the when, right? The 15th day, night of the full moon after the northern vernal equinox. That's a very specific time it's supposed to happen. We know exactly when it's supposed to happen, how, where, and we also are told here who. And who is really the theme here I'm going to spend a little bit more time on. This idea of circumcision, it's hard to identify with in our modern day and age because circumcision has very little to do with now, what it had to do with then. This idea of circumcision is is a marking. It says that there's no outsiders allowed. Only the covenant community can participate in this. This is not an ethnic discrimination. Just so you know, this is not an Israelite-specific discrimination. This is religious discrimination. This is, we don't want other people from other religions celebrating this because they simply just don't understand it. They're participating in something they have no understanding of. That it is meant to be circumcised people. And those, even outsiders, could join in that through going through the process of circumcision. Now you might say, well, that is, that's very dogmatic, right? That's, that's, that's really putting a lot on rules, right? Somebody have to go through that process. But here in this day and age, it was so vital because what it was, it was an act of faith, that when you were circumcised, when somebody in your family was circumcised, so uh, girls, uh, you don't have to endure this, but your, your husbands would have to, right? And you benefit from them enduring this because they bring your household into this covenant when they participate in it. But when you're going through the process, it's a bit later in life than what we're used to now. It's a very public thing. It's a celebration. And you are making a sacrifice, an act of faith that states that I am a covenant member of this community and that I believe in God enough to take the steps that God gives me. Now, in our modern day and age, this... this It just seems harsh. But that's because we've been taught that Christianity can come on our own terms. And the reality is that it has never been that way. Now, the terms now are a bit different than the terms then. But the the reality is that Christianity has always had terms. And it's important that we understand 
why. So, this doesn't include visitors or hired workers, people that have not been circumcised and brought into the community that are not part of the community. But it does include all of the circumcised Israelites and their families, all of the purchased slaves that have been circumcised. Um, they still have to be circumcised. So even though they're slave of the family and owned by that family, they still have to be circumcised to participate. Um, so there's no class discrimination. right? So it's not about wealthy or not wealthy, because the slaves are part of it as well. The lowest of the low of the low of that day and age are part of it as well. It is for everybody, specifically for those that have agreed to be part of the covenant relationship. If foreigners want to be part of it, they can also be circumcised and be be part of this. Now, here's an interesting thing. If it was only the Israelites to leave, who are these foreigners? Well, the reality is is that it it says that there's a a rabble of people, right? This, This group of people following with them that have enough faith in the authority of God that they are going through the exodus with the Israelites. And in this, in this passage, God is inviting them into this covenant relationship as well. He's saying, you can be part of this too. The same rule applies for you. See, God is not xenophobic. It wasn't all about just the Israelites. It was about his covenant community. And the Israelites were the ones that he chose to begin that with. But it did not stop there. Most of us are not Jewish. I am not Jewish. But I can proclaim in this day and age to be part of this covenant community because I've taken an act of faith and I've been transformed by a gospel. This is not just a New Testament principle as often we think it is. In the Old Testament, you could be circumcised and be part of the covenant community as well. Circumcision is the thing that is required of all. Why is that? Once again, it was a public celebration, a public act where you had to give up something. It was sacrificial. There's pain, right? It's not just waltzing into church and deciding today I'm going to identify myself as a Christian. I have to do something to be part of the community. Believe it or not, That's still how it works. Different act, same expectation. This idea that I have to give up something to be part of the covenant community is still, to this day, part of Christianity. I might say, wait a second, Nate, you're bordering here right on the edge of works. We're we're in real shady territory here. No, 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 no. Because what you have to do is you have to just allow God to transform you and work through you. God is going to transform you. God is going to make you into the Christian that you can be. It has nothing to do with what you are able to do, but there is an act of faith involved in allowing that to happen. And most importantly, once that transformation takes place, you should be a different person. If you are the same person now as you were before you became a Christian, there was no transformation. Because you cannot engage with God's sovereignty in that way and not somehow be transformed. God is not something that that is just a side job or religion. If we are to be part of the community of faith, we have been transformed. We have made uh, some sort of public act of that. Now, there is a lot of interesting theological disagreements on 
when you get your salvation and what act has to take place. And if you can lose that, can you gain it? Can you get it back? There's a lot of disagreement around that. But what we can all agree upon is, is that it is God that saves. It is God that transforms. And that that relationship is a personal thing between you and God. And it is defined by his covenant with you. And we are encouraged as the body of Christ to engage in that relationship, to, to understand salvation by a Trinitarian God that loves us, to engage in that, to be transformed by that, and that a life transformed will look like a life transformed. That is often not part of the gospel message anymore. Because it's easy to say that I'm a Christian, I go to church. Christianity in America has become a very cultural identity. In a very short time, America and many other Western countries have created their own identity of Christians. And by attending church, you can be a Christian. And we don't tell the message, the harsh message, that that it has to transform your life to make any difference. But if it hasn't done that, there's something missing. Because then it's not as easy to be part of. It can't be a fad, it can't be a club. It's just something I do on the weekends. We are transformed by the gospel. Circumcision was the way that you demonstrated that with the Israelites. Now, the way we demonstrate that is in the life that we live. Does circumcision save? No. Not any more than demonstrating a life today saves. But they are both a manifestation, an act of faith that you do because you have been saved. It's not works before faith. That's not the message here. It is faith in a God that loved us first, that transforms his creation, that we respond to. And because of that, we do an act of faith. And that is a transformed life. Modern day, circumcised life is the expectation of the body of Christ. We can't leave that out of the message. We can't leave that out of the gospel. It's a false gospel when we do. It's not real. If your life now is not somehow transformed from the life before, then we've missed something. And it's hard to sometimes pinpoint. I'm not asking you to pinpoint that day or that hour. Sometimes that's even hard to pinpoint. But look back on your life. Is it transformed? And if you're sitting here today thinking, wow, it's not. It's not too late. It's not that that message is still available for you. In just my short time here, I have seen people become Christians as they leave the mission field as full-time missionaries. Because they get here and they realize what, what it was was not Christianity. It wasn't a relationship with God. It wasn't a covenant membership. It was just cultural religion. That's not uncommon. You wouldn't be the only one. If that is you, then this is the time to allow God to truly transform you. To take that act That is what is expected. That means that we have to put God before everything. That's what it looks like in the modern day. That's what it looks like now, is that I put God before my family, before my wife, before my ministry. 
I don't do that well every day. And it's a struggle. But that is what is expected of my modern day involvement in this covenant community. It means that we have to give up things like our identity and who we are. There's so much conversation right now about justification of identity and culture. What defines you? And there are far too many Christians engaging in this conversation and allowing other things to identify who we are. Your sexuality does not identify you. Your parents do not identify you. Your wife, your kids, your ministry, that doesn't define you. Those things don't define you. If you are a Christian, there is one thing and one thing only, and that is the gospel that defines you. And to say that I'm not willing to give up those things, that I'm not willing to allow my identity to be transformed, means that you have not yet fully understood the gospel. You have not yet fully been transformed by the gospel. The fact that you are struggling daily with giving your identity up and allowing the gospel into your life means that you got it. That you're willing to go to battle every day with that. To give up what defines you and allow God into that place. That's what it looks like to be part of the modern day covenant community. God loved us first. Gosh, we have to start there. We have to start there every time. If not, it becomes about us. It becomes about somehow us manipulating the system. God loved us first. Sovereignly and eternally. That's why we're here. Because of that love, I've been transformed and I have no choice but to somehow give my life to be submissive to that transformation, to allow it to take me over. And in that, God will work. He will transform. And I will have the opportunity to renew that covenant with him. Thank God now that Jesus has come and there is a new law and a new covenant And we don't have to observe all these complex rules to be part of this covenant community. That faith in Jesus Christ has replaced that. But don't by any means think that gets you out of sacrifice. Don't by any means think that that makes it so that you don't have to do anything. Because we are to be transformed. God loved us first. He acted, we reacted. He transforms us. And now we have a testimony to share. I pray that my testimony, that your testimony, are things that glorify God. Because that's how this cycle continues. Because then you engage in a relationship with another person and they look at you and they think, what has happened to this person? They've been transformed. This God that they worship must be an amazing job, amazing God. And you see this mindset of the Egyptians looking into the modern-day Christian life, and they're looking in going, who is this God? He has transformed these people. I want to believe in this God. I want to be part of this. That experience of our sharing our testimony is exactly the same experience as the Egyptians looking into the lives of the Israelites and being transformed. 
That's how we share the gospel. By laying our transformation out for others to see and to participate in. And then they start to think, man, if he can make use of that guy, Nate, believe me, he was useless. If he can make use of that guy, then I've got hope. And I want that. And then they see God's transformation in me, God acting, and then they respond. And that response becomes a testimony that they lay out to people around them. And then those people observe that testimony and they think, wow, that person, they were terrible. They were horrible. What has God done? This God is something I want to be part of. And it continues and continues and continues. And that is what the gospel life is. The Israelites were experiencing that. And it's so valuable to be able to look back on their experience and study it and see how God worked. Because contrary to popular belief, that God is the same as this God. The one that we worship now is the same God. His character has not changed. He is still the God of nations. The sovereign God that can transform humans, people, his creation, that he can do what he wills with his people. That was the God of then, and it is the God of now. And that is my hope for us as the church. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.